Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's true and eternal word. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee, what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in, and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bring all that call on thy name to bind. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way, as thou camest, hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. And he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. Amen. Let us now... 
we open again our Bibles in Acts chapter 9. And we have before us what has been considered by some um, following the greatest event in history, which is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in consequence of that, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Some has, have referred to the conversion of Apostle Paul as the next greatest event in all of history. And in this little introduction, we, we will see why. The persecution of believers began in earnest with the martyrdom of Stephen. Um, Luke narrated the ministry of Philip in Samaria, as many of the believers resorted to Samaria to flee persecution, and yet there they witnessed to the people of Samaria, Philip, as, as a leading evangelist. Luke narrates from there on where, where Philip is used to evangelize the Ethiopian eunuch, who was the treasurer of Queen Candace. And after his conversion, Philip goes on north all the way to Caesarea, But in chapter 9, the story goes back, the record goes back to the persecution that began with the martyrdom of Stephen. And it begins with the very leader of this persecution, who is Saul of Tarsus. So we we have before us the, the blessed, majestic, miraculous record of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, whom the Lord Jesus will tell Ananias, he is a chosen vessel unto God. Gratian Machen said this, the Christian movement in A.D. 35 would have appeared to be a superficial, to a superficial observer to be a Jewish sect. Thirty years later, It was plainly a world religion. And this establishment as a world religion, to almost as great an extent as any great historical movement can be ascribed to one man, was the work of Paul. We see in the letters that Paul had many co-workers But it's not like there were 20 or 30 leaders that were very much equal in all that they did. It's Paul. We owe the greatest part of the New Testament to his writings. Uh, The existence of the church in the known world is because of Paul's evangelistic ministry. Even the knowledge of some of the most Foundational doctrines are thanks to the letters that were inspired by God and Paul wrote. Doctrines of predestination, justification, our union with Christ, as we will see, that Paul would have learned in this very day that he was converted. As well as as the sad reality of sin, it is Paul who makes often lists of sins and makes that very clear that those who are living in the practice of those sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. And with the same boldness, he makes those precious lists of the fruit of the Spirit that that are ours because of God's grace. Paul 
is the one who delineates very precisely the, the roles of husband and wives, of fathers and mothers, of children, and even of employers and employees. Um, he, he lists the gifts of the spirits throughout his letters so that we know we may have even church officers and who elders and deacons are to be and how every believer may serve in the kingdom of God through the gifts of mercy and of giving and of presiding and of teaching. It is Paul who gives all of these lists. We would have never known about the armor of God if it weren't for Paul Speaking of that helmet of salvation and breastplate of righteousness and shield of faith and sword of the Spirit, God used Paul to teach us all these things that are, that are what Christianity is. You, you think perhaps of some of the most clear, central truths of Christianity and think of where you learned it and it will probably be one of the letters of Apostle Paul. Now, who was Paul? Well, he was, of course, of Tarsus. Um, it, this was the most important city of Cilicia. And that is in the southern part to the east, close to that corner that goes on down to Lebanon today. It's pretty much where the earthquake has hit. Tarsus was right in that area. Um, it was a Roman city um, Anyone from Tarsus would be able to have access to education that would have been as good as Athens or Alexandria. And that's where Paul would have been schooled. His Jewish name was, was Saul, which, which means desired. And his Roman name is Paul, which means little. And it was common for scholars, um, at least of what I can understand of, of the Jewish strain, where they weren't just given to studying, but that they also developed a skill with their hands. And one of the skills that scholars would, would take is that of tent making. And we know that that is the skill that Paul had along with his knowledge. Um, we, we know that at some point he would have gone to Jerusalem, and that's when he would have sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, the important thing to know there is that Gamaliel was the grandson of the great rabbi, the famous rabbi Hillel. And Hillel was famous because he was really the founder of Phariseeism. So Paul studied under the very grandson of the founder of the sect that Paul became a part of as a Pharisee. We learn from some of his letters, like an autobiography, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means he was not a proselyte. He was one from a Jewish family. And we know also he was a Benjamite, which was a tribe of distinction. Because remember, when there was that great division, um, even though many tribes went with the tribes of the north, the Benjamites kind of stuck with the tribe of Judah. So it was known as a, as a faithful tribe. So let's look at the persecutor's hatred and then secondly, the Savior's grace. This passage has this clear distinction, just a little beginning showing, showing the heart of this man, a very unlikely convert. He would be the one that you would write off. You would perhaps not even think of spending time trying to evangelize this man. You would think that it would be like casting pearls to swine. Because 
Who in the world would ever imagine that this man would ever become a believer? So let us look at the the hatred of this persecutor. And then secondly, we'll see the grace of the Savior and the power and the love. There's so many words that describes what God does in the life of this man. Now, from from the onset, um, everything we know about Saul is his animosity against the church. Remember, it was right there at the closing of that very sad and dramatic scenario. Stephen is, is, is dying. The stones have been cast upon him. And, and Luke makes a little reference that the people who were there casting stones, as they took their clothes off so that it would be easier, their coats, to, to, to cast the stones, they're putting it all at the foot of a young man called Saul. And we do understand that he was presiding over all of that because then we get to chapter 8. It says that Saul was consenting to his death, indicating some element of leadership on the part of Saul. And then we read also in chapter 8 that he's the one who made havoc of the church. To make havoc is to incur damage, to bring injury to God's people. He entered into every house and hailing men and women committed them to prison. These are very strong terms that describe the activity in the heart of this man. He made havoc. He invaded homes. And now in chapter 9, we begin reading and it says that he was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Um, it, It is as if just as easy it is for you and myself to breathe and that is what gives us life so in this man he breathed threatenings and slaughter and that's what gave him life it's the idea that what kept him moving was the desire to threaten and kill and the idea here is threaten as if to say if you recant being a Christian we keep you alive if you don't recant we kill you that's what it means to threaten and then to slaughter If they don't repent, then they die. He was killing people. He was injuring them. He was putting men and women behind bars. And that means that he was leaving little children fatherless and motherless. He was desiring to destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry says this, Though we say threatened folks live long, yet those whom Saul threatened, if he prevailed not thereby to frighten them from Christ, he slew them. He persecuted them to death. His breathing out threatenings and slaughter intimates that it was natural to him and his constant business. So this, this sets the tone. This is important for us to see. This is what I mean. This is the most unlikely convert. And yet our second point is the Savior's grace. Now, as we enter the second point, notice that when we think about God and His character and His attributes, He would have been completely in the right given His justice, that now what we have as our second point is the Savior's justice or the Savior's wrath or God's discipline. There have been men who have dared risen their hands against God, God's anointed, and they died. They did not fare well for doing it. 
But isn't it wonderful, beloved, that we, we have our second point, the Savior's grace. Because as this man has all of this that we've been talking about in his heart, going to Damascus just to find more people, to kill more people, to put people in prison, God stops him powerfully and saves him. God is gracious and he saves him. We have this second point, the Savior's grace and not the Savior's justice. There are other parts in Scripture that we see the Savior's justice. And we see Nebuchadnezzar having that dream that something might happen to him. He dares be proud and he gets all the glory. And in one moment from the next, he becomes like an animal out in the field for seven years. And that's the Savior's justice. He was gracious to bring him back still. But here Paul, in an instant, not seven years, he's not chained to the ground for a while, from one second to the next, three days later, his eyes are open. He receives the Holy Spirit. He is baptized. That's the Savior's grace. And in terms of of the firsts that we've been seeing, we've seen the first martyr, the first global persecution, the first evangelistic movement or evangelical movement. The Samaritans are saved. The first Gentile believer, who was the first African believer, here we could clearly say that we have the record of the first persecutor turned believer. It is the first time to see a them enemy of the church become a member of the church it is the first time to see one who hates Christ's people to become a lover of Christ he begins this chapter as a persecutor in a few verses of chapter 9 before too long he is a preacher and if we read the end of chapter 9 he is persecuted Verse 23, Paul needs to escape. This is a first. All this in one chapter. And Christ appears to him. And what follows could be described at least in seven principles. And the rest of this message, we we will look at seven principles that we find here. One great danger when we look at the conversion of Paul. And this is because of our weakness as humans. There are people right now who, are, who will not dare say they are believers because this has not happened to them. And this is what they're waiting for. There are people right now in this world who think this, this is the blueprint for conversion. But they look at the blueprint in terms of, of experience and not in terms of the principles. I, I do believe there are elements of blueprints here of what conversion is. But never it means that for you to be saved, you need to see the same amount of light and be blinded for so many days as, as it happened to Paul. And, and, and it's, it's, it sounds crazy for you, but there are people who are locked into that mindset right now. And they think that this is how it has to be for you to be saved. And so this is why the safe thing is to speak in terms of principles. The principles never change, but the experiences do. And, and we're going to see this in these very principles. The first principle is simply this, that God is the one who saves sinners. This event proves it simply 
completely in a clear way that there is no human way to become a believer. It is a divine way to become a believer. Now, even God's Word in Acts has been showing us there are false believers like Simon Magus. We saw him as an example. Yes, he was a man-made Christian for as many days as he was with that testimony before he was severely rebuked. But we're not speaking of that kind of Christian. We're speaking of true believers. And a true believer is made by God, not made by man. And why do I say this? Because there is absolutely no possible way that this man called Saul could ever become a believer under the circumstances of his life and heart. Think of our first point. Why would that man say, Lord Jesus, save me? He is killing people who say that. He has a warrant in his hand, a letter that says that he can enter synagogues and enter homes and take men and women bound to Jerusalem. Why will he become one of them? Humanly speaking, it's impossible. He hated Christians and Christianity. Why will he become one? There is no answer but this. God. God is the one who changes the heart of this man. See, this man did not want to change. He wasn't a seeker. He was a killer of Christians. Christ will say, why persecutest thou me? He, He was in war against Christ. But Christ conquered his heart. God is the one who saves Christians. God can do what man cannot do, and God will do what man does not want to do. Now this leads to the second principle that is, that is still centered upon this reality of God, that God saves in different ways. By now we have quite a few examples here in Acts, and we have to look at all of this as a blueprint of how God does His work. And this is what we come with. Is God, God uses many ways. He's a creative God. He is not locked into one system and one mechanism. There is no blueprint experience as the way by which one must be saved. And we will look at the principles that follow. But notice all of this variety so far. Number one is in terms of of numbers. Um, The the majority of examples that we have so far are of thousands and multitudes of people becoming Christians at the same time. They are told what to do, to repent and be baptized. And they do it. God puts it in their hearts to repent and gives them faith. And they want the sign of of their repentance. And they are part of the church. And before you know it, they're, they're selling things and giving it to the church because their heart hurts to see others who are needy. And, and, and the church keeps growing. At Pentecost, there were 3,000. Before you know it, there are 5,000. And in Samaria, it looks like there were also a multitude believing. But then we have the example of the Ethiopian eunuch being saved. Just one at that one event. So in terms of numbers, there, there are varieties. And then in terms of miraculous events, these conversions are not always happening in response to miracles, neither in response to the same miracles 
there's a variety. There was, of course, the, the miracle of tongues, and then many people believed. There were healings and sicknesses, uh, healing of sicknesses and, and deliverances of demons, and then many people were saved. There was the healing of just that one man who was lame, and many people were saved. Then there were no miracles at all, and many people were saved. Um, the eunuch hears the gospel in a very earthly kind of way. He didn't see how, how he received of the Lord to be there. He just sees that Philip is there. He hears the gospel. He believes he's baptized. No miracle. No, no, no speaking in tongues. No majesty. But he's saved. And now we have this one where it's, it's so unique where he sees this light shining round about him. It, it is so brilliant. It is daytime, and yet he can see this brightness before him. Like the sun, he has to close his eyes because it's so great, and he hears the Lord Jesus speaking to him. And see, what, what we have then is this is the authority of God. Someone who says, this is how you are saved, they are closing their eyes to the rest of Scripture. God has been saving from Pentecost to now, and of course, from even before then. And it's always in different ways. See, that's the blueprint. The blueprint is that God uses whatever way He wants. It's not just one way. So, so in terms of numbers, in terms of miraculous events, in terms of people whom God uses, He used Peter at Pentecost. He used Peter and John at the temple. He used Philip in Samaria and for the Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Gaza. And now, at this event, He uses no one on this earth but Jesus who comes from heaven. And this is what's very majestic. There's not a single person right here who is only earthly. Yes, we have Jesus, who is man and God, speaking to, to, to Paul. So there's a point here being used, that if God wants to save someone with no one, none of us, he can do that. God saves whichever way he wants to save. But notice, even though he doesn't use someone here, he does use his word. Through the Lord Jesus himself, he uses Christ. But what I'm speaking is no one human here on earth. God doesn't need us. We, 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 we need to evangelize, but we need to evangelize with a lot of humility, acknowledging I, God doesn't even need me to evangelize. He just wants me to evangelize. So you go with a whole different attitude. And then we can also say places. It's another variety. He has saved places and people in synagogues, at the temple, somewhere in Samaria, at the road to Gaza, in the wilderness, and now again at a road just before entering into Damascus. So you see, it's all this variety. God, God saves in different ways. And thirdly, there's a third principle to consider. And, and this is, these principles are kind of following the narrative. So, so here's Saul. He, he got these letters. They're like documents that will give him authority. 
Think of these letters as an agenda. Paul, Paul knows what to do. These letters are telling him what to do. He's going to enter synagogues and into homes and hunt the believers and take them bound to Jerusalem. Maybe those who recant, they will let them live their lives, but those who don't, or that he is suspicious, whether they are just lying, he will take them bound. He, he knows what to do. That, that's his agenda. He's on his way to Damascus. But then we have this third principle. To persecute a believer is to persecute Jesus. This is something almost central in all of what Paul learns on this day. And it becomes central to the very doctrine that Paul will pen and it will become Scripture. And and I'll explain what I mean. Um, This, of course, is a great encouragement to believer. If you're a believer, if somebody persecutes you, take courage. Be encouraged that Jesus knows because he feels it as if unto himself. You're not alone. And for unbelievers, it is a great warning. Unbelievers who persecute a Christian, they need to be warned and understand they are persecuting Jesus. Matthew Henry, he says this, Christ has many ways of delivering the godly out of temptation and sometimes does it by a change wrought in their persecutors, either restraining their wrathful spirits and mollifying them for a time as the Old Testament Saul who relented toward David more than once or renewing their spirits and fixing upon them durable impressions as upon the New Testament Saul here. And so as Saul sees that he is persecuting Jesus that is used of God to stop him on his tracks and not, not just that he feels bad about doing it but that he will utterly repent for doing it. Now, um, along with this mindset, I'm going to say another statement of, of what all this means. See, when, when you resist the gospel, now think of, of what Paul was doing. When, when he was persecuting believers, he was resisting the gospel. And so Jesus is teaching that to resist the gospel is to resist Jesus. To resist the gospel is to kick against the pricks. Well, follow what happened. So, so as he was journeying in verse 3, it says that as he came near to Damascus, there shined suddenly round about him a light from heaven. Not just in front of him, round about. It's as if, if he saw the light in front of him, he turned around to, fight, fear, to, to flee from it. It was there around him. He was encapsulated into this shining globe of light. And so he fell to the earth and he heard this voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul. Why persecutest thou me? See, that's where we get this principle that if you persecute Christians, you persecute Jesus. And then he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. See, Jesus is saying, You're resisting me. You have been hearing the gospel. And when you don't accept it, you are resisting me. 
put this into context. See, when Stephen, we were there and we heard the sermon of Stephen, Stephen's sermon was to that congregation with the express end that men would repent. Those very Sanhedrin leaders were to hear that sermon and have their hearts pricked in an evangelical way and break. What did Paul do? He became the leader of the stoning event. So he resisted. And Jesus is saying, when you resisted the preaching of Stephen, you were resisting me. You were kicking against the pricks. And the way we put it this way is, think of what this, this figure means, kicking against the pricks. This, if, if you've ever been to a ranch, if you've ever seen how cowboys do with, with cattle, when they, especially when they put them into... Um, the, 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 the roundup and they want to put them into a corridor to make them be line in line and you're going to vaccinate them or do certain things like that. When you're wanting to drive the cattle, one of the things they do with a, with a long staff that has somewhat of a spike at the top and, and they kind of prick the cattle with that. And what do the cattle do? They, they do move, but oftentimes they kick. They kick in response to that. And usually when they do that, it's really worse for them because the cowboy is somewhat controlling that. But with that kick, sometimes that spike enters a little bit into the flesh, the leather of the cow. And so they, they hurt. They hurt because they're disobeying their leader who is telling them to move. And, and put this in the context. Here's Stephen preaching that sermon. That is God saying, listen, Saul, repent, believe. Don't be like all those men of the old past who, who rejected me. They rejected Moses. They rejected Joseph. And, and so many have rejected the prophets. And all of you are here about to reject Jesus. Remember Stephen's sermon. And what did Paul do? He rejected Jesus. That sermon was pricking him, pricking him. And what did he do? He kicked and he kicked. Now, of course, let us bring this to, to our very hearts today. If, if you are hearing the gospel and you are not saved, see, your rejecting of the gospel is rejecting Jesus. It is not rejecting your father and mother who evangelize you at home. It is not rejecting me who preaches as a, as a, as a preacher. You are not rejected, rejecting anyone human who has ever shared the gospel with you. You are rejecting Jesus. And every prod of the word is the pricking to your heart. And if you reject, it's you're kicking. And you're the one suffering for it. This is what Jesus is telling Paul. Now he's telling something also very, very instructive. He's talking to Paul as an unbeliever. And we understand the theology that Paul could be someone who could say, but I can't believe. I'm lost, I'm not saved. How, how can I believe? And Jesus is right here explaining to Paul that that is not an excuse he has. Every time he's been pricked with the gospel message, there is the theological truth that he cannot believe on his own. But that is not in the category of an excuse for the unbeliever. It is part of his sin. It is part of his guilt. Beloved, we, we live among some who use that excuse and we need to learn to lovingly say, yes, my dear friend, and that is your sin as well. The fact that we cannot believe does not excuse us 
from not believing. Because Jesus told Paul, when you don't believe in me, you are kicking against the pricks. You see what Jesus is doing. He's saying, yes, as an unbeliever, you are unable, you are lost, you are blind, and yet you're responsible. And you are rebelling. And when you have been pricked with the gospel, you have been kicking. And Paul, that is your sin. That is what you must repent of. And don't add to your sin by using a theological excuse that you are lost and how can you believe? Do you realize Paul, Paul is the one who, who, who champions the doctrine of God's sovereignty and election and, 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 persevere and, and, and predestination, yet he learned from his Savior that when he was lost, even though he couldn't believe, and none of us can, yet he should have believed and Jesus is reproving him, reproving him for not having done it. See, that's theology. And we, we can't use theology to keep on sinning. And if we know brothers and sisters who are doing this, we need to bring this very passage to bear and tell them, stop kicking against the pricks. That's what Jesus would tell any one of us. If you're not yet saved and you're hearing the gospel, Jesus would say to you, stop kicking against the pricks. I, am, I have sent this messenger. You have read the Bible. Your father has read to you. Your mother has evangelized you, and you are rejecting. You, you are rejecting me. This is what Jesus would say. This is what he says to, to Paul. And this, this, what we're talking about, this reality, if you persecute a Christian, you're persecuting Christ. If you reject the gospel, you're rejecting Christ. This becomes, in a way, the hallmark doctrine that Paul champions. And, and let, me, let me explain what I mean. Um, the union with Christ that the believer is united with Christ. And in these two ways, glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life so that our, our living in obedience is like a resurrection from the grave. And so Jesus came forth out of the grave. And if you're a true believer, you will come forth out of a life. Christ liveth in me. It's on that day that he heard Jesus tell him that when he stoned Stephen, he was stoning Jesus. That as he persecuted a believer here and a believer there, he was persecuting Jesus. He understood the doctrine of the union of Christ for good or for evil. For evil, I mean in terms of suffering, which is still good because Jesus is with you. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And then Romans 6, 3, notice, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus were baptized into His death. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So that our, our living in obedience is like a resurrection from the grave. And so Jesus came forth out of the grave, and if you're a true believer, you will come forth out of a life of sin and live in newness of life. And, and that is all thanks to your union in Christ. Ephesians 2.5, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. 
See, together, united with Christ, and hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in a spiritual reality, we are in heaven. We are sitting together in heavenly places. And then in terms of suffering, and and I've alluded to this many times, you may have heard in some of my sermons, and I, I wasn't so aware of so many verses that bring this reality. Let me list some of them. 2 Corinthians 1, 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. The sufferings of Christ were on the cross, and here am I. But Paul is saying, when you suffer, those sufferings of Christ are abounding in you. So our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Philippians 3.10 That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. We have a communion with the very sufferings of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.10 Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Paul says that of himself. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Galatians 6, 17, he speaks of bearing in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And then Colossians 1, 24, he speaks of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh. Because see, this man Paul, later in his life, yes, he was the persecutor, but then you know his life was de-persecuted. And when he was scourged, and when he was whipped, and when he was shipwrecked, Paul is saying, I did it all for Christ. And these marks that I have in my body, they are the marks of the Lord Jesus. The afflictions of Christ are on my flesh. Isn't it precious that this reality that he spoke of the rest of his life, he began to learn it here in his conversion, where Jesus told him, Why are you persecuting me? You are kicking against the pricks. So that's the third principle, the principle really of union with Christ, that when you persecute a Christian, you're persecuting Jesus. If you resist the gospel, you're resisting Jesus. Now, the fourth principle, let's go to the fourth one. And I I will close today with this one. Conversion is like a court scenario. This is what we see here. This man was like a judge going into a city. He was planning to arraign people, arrest them, call them by their names. He would pronounce them guilty, read the indictment, the accusations, the charges, and they would be sentenced or released if found innocent. But look at what happens. He falls on the earth. He hears his name, Saul, Saul. He hears the indictment, why persecutest thou me? He hears the charge, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. This man is arrested, he is arraigned, he hears the name, he hears the indictment, he hears the charges. He can go nowhere. He is surrounded by the light of God. He is trembling, verse 6, and astonished. And what he has to say is, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He's like in a court scenario. 
And the only thing he can do is plead the mercy of the judge. Have you been converted? Are you a true convert? Have you ever seen conversion as a court scenario where God calls your name and you're arrested? You have nowhere to go. You're in His presence. And He reads the indictment and He calls out the charge. And what have you to say for yourself? Well, to really close, I'll go to the fifth one because this is the answer. Conversion is when you finally line up your will with Christ's. This is what Paul did. He repented. The mark of his conversion is when this man, who knew very well what he was going to do, He had it in a parchment that was, like we said, like an agenda. He probably had in his mind Synagogue 1, Synagogue 2, Synagogue 3, and he was going to get the addresses and visit everyone and hunt all the Christians. He knew what to do. But look at what he says. What wilt thou have me to do? What do you see there? You see a man who threw to the window and to the winds his agenda. He has absolutely nothing to do that Saul, the man, desires to do. That authority from the high priest, it's thrown away. And he looks at this one whom he cannot really see, but now he believes who has indicted him and brought the charge. And he says, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I have heretofore been a persecutor, but Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I've been a hater of the Lord Jesus, but thou, Lord Jesus, what wilt thou have me to do? I've been a man who knew exactly what to do, but now, Lord, what will Thou have me to do? And beloved, it goes right along with what this very man Paul taught us last Lord's Day in Romans 12, where we were seeing him say, in a pleading demeanor saying, I beseech you by the mercies of God. And then he listed what all those mercies were to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Where did Paul learn this? It was here. He was right here like a sacrifice saying, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He was like a lamb on the altar, bound, and he was there just bleeding as it were, saying, the rest of my life I want to live, Lord, What will thou have me to do? A living sacrifice. It was this day that he began to be holy and pleasing to the Lord. It was this day in an instant that he was no longer in in the frame of Judaism and Phariseeism being molded by that world. And he had now his mind transformed. And he was looking to Christ and saying, What wilt thou have me to do? Conversion is when your will lines up with Christ. We all have things to do. Have you gotten to the point where it matters nothing? My will matters nothing. There are a lot of good things. I want to get married. I want to have a business. I want to have a degree. I want to have children. In light of God's will, these desires 
are all in the mind and heart of God. Whatever he gives of these things, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. And then there are bad things. There are evil desires, sinful ways, sinful patterns. And we need to look at these and say, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. My plan, my agenda, Lord, is upon the altar of God. What wilt thou have me to do? Conversion is like a courtroom scenario. And the moment you convert is when you say, Lord, I'm yours. And that is no work. You're ceasing from work. You're actually saying there's nothing I can do. I cannot flee from here. I'm at thy mercy. I acknowledge now that I've been killing you. I've been hating you. I've been, I've been rejecting you. And now I want you. What will thou have me to do? Have you come to that point in your life? And I'm speaking even to you if you're a professing believer. Is that how you live as a believer? Have you come to this courtroom? Have you then looked to the Lord Jesus and have this moment? And I was listening to a sermon this week of speaking of how, how imperative it is that every one of us individually come to a moment before our Savior if there's a blueprint in what happened to, to Paul, not in intensity, not in degrees, but in that he is there before Jesus. Have you ever come before Jesus? And have you looked at him and said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? It doesn't matter what I want to do anymore. What I want to do is what you want me to do. And I believe in you. And I want to serve you and follow you. And as for my sins, I want them on the cross. Blessed Savior, who died for me, cleanse me, save me, and I'll be yours. I'm tired of being my own. Have you come to that point? Have you prayed this way to the Lord? It, it's different for each and every one of us. We don't all see this glamorous light. The majority of us don't. You look all throughout your church history. It's very few examples of extra dramatic conversion experiences. But the dramatic experience is that your will becomes Christ's. That's repentance. That's one more way to speak of faith and repentance. And Lord willing, we'll hope to see the other few, few principles next time, Lord willing. But let us then close in prayer. Our gracious, glorious God, how we thank Thee, Lord, that Thou art a God who saves sinners. Help us to understand, Lord, that everyone is saved in a different way, and yet always through the gospel, always through thy word, always through thy Holy Spirit, always through faith and repentance, different intensities, different people, different amount of, of people even. Lord,
Lord, help us not to seek, Lord, for a certain experience, but help us to simply trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and help us to sincerely desire, like Paul that day, not to do our will, but to do thine. Forgive us, Lord, for our will. So often our will is selfish. So often it is sinful. So often it is one-sided. So often it is um, unloving. And Lord, for all the will that is good, we pray that Thou would still be the one, Lord, to guide us and that we would idolize nothing that would be in itself good, but that Thou, Lord, would be the one we adore. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.